0: Welcome to Bibliography, a podcast for people who love a good-to-be-read list. I'm David Kern here at Goldberry Books in Concord, North Carolina, and this is a show about the way books make our lives richer. This week's guest is Sam Sachs. Sam is a book critic whose work has appeared in The Atlantic, Harper's The Weekly Standard, The New Republic Commentary, and The New Yorker, and he is also a founding editor of Open Letters Monthly. Today he writes the Weekly Fiction Chronicle for The Wall Street Journal. He's one of the best fiction critics working today, one of the best book critics working today, a guy with incredible insight, wonderful, fascinating taste, and, uh, and a broad and creative approach to criticism. We're coming up on autumn here, and that means that a lot of the, the big-name books by big-name authors are going to be dropping soon. They're going to be showing up on the shelves of the bookstores you love most. However, a lot of books have come out this year. A lot of pretty great books have come out this year. So I wanted to talk to Sam about his favorite works of fiction that he's read so far this year. So a few weeks ago, we jumped on Zoom and chatted about a few of Sam's favorite books that he's read this year. On his list are a book by a Nobel Prize winner, a wonderful new debut, and a couple other books that are flying under the radar a little bit. But of course, I know that you are not listening to hear from me. You want to hear about these books. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Sam Sachs about his favorite books of fiction so far in 2022. Hope you find a book or two to love. Thanks for coming on. I'm excited to talk books with you.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
0: You're um, like one of the people that uh, I don't know how to put this exactly. I kind of rely on for my own reading, but also for our bookstore because you have, I don't know if my taste just jives with yours, but um, I feel like you're always finding interesting things that I'm not going to find everywhere and uh, and then I have found that people who come into our shop, you know, when they say, where did you hear about this book? I can say, well, Sam Sachs, Wall Street Journal. <laughs> um, <laughs> We're uh, lucky to have you out there um, helping curate books for all of us who, who read you. I appreciate that.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a, one thing I can say for myself is uh, I cover a lot. It's, a, it's just the question of volume. I'm, I'm yeah. out there doing yeah yeah virtually three books every week. So I, I, I managed to get to a lot of things.
0: Well, I want to talk to you about some new fiction soon, but I also want to talk about some of the things that, some of the books that have sort of, you know, been a part of your life for a long time. And one of the first questions I like to ask people is, do you remember the first time that you fell in love with a book?
1: That's a good question. I I do actually, uh, or at least one of the first times it was, um, a young adult fantasy series by Lloyd Alexander, and it's uh, the uh, yeah. the Pride Drain Chronicles or the Pride Dane Chronicles. Pride Drain Yeah, Drain. I think it's
0: Pride Dane Chronicles of Pride. Pride Dane, yeah. And,
1: And uh, I was not a huge fantasy reader. I have no idea why this particular series hmm. uh, involved me so much, except it must be very good. But it's <laughs> it's five books. And um, the thing that I recall, I, I think I read them pretty quickly because they were all already out. And what I remember is that in the first book, the, the main character is the, the sort of the humble hero who rises to save the kingdom is a is a pig herder, a swine herder called Terran or Terran or something. And he, in the first book, he has an encounter with one of the, the flying dragons who is... Um, in the in the in the service of sort of the evil the evil uh, beast or creature who's, who's running the kingdom and he has an encounter with this dragon and he the, the dragon is injured in some way and taran helps the dragon which then flies away so this is in the first book and then four more books happen and then the the last book which is called the high king which is the the big sort of Lord of the Rings like final battle takes place. Mm. All the dragons are there and Terran is there and fighting. And in the very near the very end where it looks like he's sort of doomed and he's going to be destroyed. He encounters this dragon that he had saved and the dragon remembers him. And Hmm. there's an, there's a, there's an important sort of critical thing. And what I remember Hmm. is I remember Seeing that about to happen, and remembering the scene, and then realizing that the author had did, had done this thing where he planted this mm. initial thing and then had held it for five books in order for there to be this enormous dramatic payoff in the fifth book, and I remember being so astonished by the craft of that and by the ingenuity of that, and by and by the dramatic effect that that had on me. Because even though I sort of saw it happening, I also was incredibly moved and excited by it. Yeah. That's one of the very early reading memories I have where not only did I really love the book, but I also loved it on, I guess you would call it, sort of a proto-early critical level where I, Mm. I was really excited and satisfied by the by the writing of it, by the craft of it, by the mm. thought that had gone into it.
0: Yeah. So that's yeah. one of the earliest ones. There was a choice there that the author was making and you were contemplating the actual choice.
1: Yeah, the author had, had done something. I mean, it's, you know now if you think about it, I suppose it's a, it's a pretty standard dramatic trick. or but, um, but it's not something I knew about when I first started reading the book. It's not that's something true, yeah. when, I, when I read the first volume, I wouldn't have thought, Oh, the author's planting a seed that he's then going to mm. use, use later, which I would do now if I were reading a similar book. I'd be looking for all sorts of clues and stuff but sure. at the time I didn't realize it and then when i re- when I discovered it was happening kind of in real time while reading it, I remember being completely thrilled by the by by the success of that and how much it moved me
0: and also the ingenuity of of doing that Pardon. were you a like a big reader all through childhood? I mean, it's...
1: no, I wasn't, I was a normal reader. I mean, I wasn't, a, I, uh, no, I, I'm trying to remember what sort of things I read on my own. And I think they were like cartoons. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I don't have a huge memory of what I was reading apart from what was assigned to me in school. What I, when I start to remember being really, um, affected by, by books. They were school assignments. They were high school school assignments. And they were, they were the usual suspects. They were books like, like Crime and Punishment and, uh, The Lord of the Flies. And, uh, I remember being completely astonished by, uh, All the King's Men, hmm. um, which I think I read senior year of high school. Um, so it was probably about that time, probably about junior year, senior year of high school that I kind of realized that I was beloved was another one that I was, I was really, uh, kind of amazed by. I, I started to, to latch on to sort of the, the strange narrative things and point of view things that, that Morrison was doing. So it was about that time that I started to really, uh, awaken to, to reading. And another so before that, I, I, I wasn't, I think I just read an average amount and nothing. I wasn't one of those sort of extremely voracious reader readers. Yeah. So it was, it was your basic uh, high school curriculum that kind of
0: woke me up to things. Do you, do you, do you remember when the, the notion of being a book critic kind of became something you could see yourself doing?
1: No, that, that, that was much, I mean, that, so that was another thing I would not have even occurred to me to do. I mean, I, I wasn't reading book criticism until college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, yeah, and then I was, I, I was reading reviews, but and then I started reading things like the New York Review of Books and mm-hmm. yeah, things like that in the New Yorker and sort of being excited about reading those, but not necessarily thinking I wanted to, to write them. It was more like I felt, it was a very intellectually exciting thing to do and probably intellectually vain thing to do to to be reading these things and circling the words you didn't know and whatnot. <laughs> writing writing criticism, I mean I did I did recognize in in college that I really liked the, the English classes and the literature classes and that I always had things to say in them and that I did well in them. But again, I, I probably wouldn't have put together I would should then write book reviews. I started doing that. I I did a I did a a fiction MFA after I I graduated. I took a couple years. I did a I did an MFA in writing fiction, and around I guess I guess just before that or around yeah just before that when I was when I was starting to do the MFA I, I a friend suggested that I, I write for the, the city weeklies, you know, those, those free that oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. used to be in every city and now are virtually gone. Um, yeah. But every city used to have one and sometimes two of them. And they're just, you know, desperate for content, especially the small ones. I mean, people yeah. know Village Voice, but every city had these things. Oh, and yeah. They, yeah. they were just in those boxes on the corner. Um, And I was, I happened to be living in Pittsburgh and they had two free city weeklies. And like the the big one, it was too big for me, but there was a second one that that it was just a, it was just a really small organization, but they put out a paper every single week. Um, So I, so I just wrote something on spec uh, on the recommendation of a friend. Uh, I had worked in a bookstore during college and I had a friend who, who, who did, who had done reviewing in his life and had been actually been a sort of an arts editor, an arts newspaper editor. Anyhow, he just suggested it. So I did that for for free city weeklies, just because it was fun. I found it fun to do. And I could get in print and I could get, you know, $50 for each one or something like that. Yeah um and then it just sort of it it kind of continued snowballed from there but it wasn't it was never sort of something i thought of as a career until it's until it started to go and go and go and, and
0: lead to other things well now you're a you're the fiction reviewer for the wall street journal which means that you're you know a lot of people are reading you you're kind of by necessity or just by the nature of the job kind of one of the people that's I don't know if the phrase is gatekeeping but definitely impacting what gets in front of people. And so one of the questions that I have is is related to that but maybe in a way that doesn't seem obvious. For you as someone who has that job and has gets to help curate that kind of, you know, what people are reading, what then makes for a good book critic? Um if there's, you know, if there's a couple of principles um that you would say like you know there's there's a lot of different options from blogs to you and the Wall Street Journal, to the New Yorker, as you said, to the London Review of Books and Los Angeles Review of Books and the New York Review of Books and so on so on and so forth. There's a lot of options. All of them have their own taste and taste yes. certainly probably has something to do with it for a reader. But what makes what makes a a of all those places with all the full of all those different voices for you, what makes a good book critic? Yeah,
1: there's a lot of elements to it, but, you know, one of them, a big one, it, it really comes down to having a point of view because a point of view is a basis for judgment. You do need uh, critical to being a book critic is you do have to you do have to decide whether something is is good and and demonstrates talent and brilliance or whether it doesn't. I mean that mm-hmm. and, and you need to have you need to have some insight or some point of view or some or some fully developed sense of what is good and what is not good in order to mm-hmm. in order to do that and like as you say there there are different criteria and different bases for what those things might be so it's entirely possible for critics who are both who both have really developed point of views and very strong a very strong sense of what's good and bad to completely disagree on a book, Mm -hmm. not because someone has misread it, but because they've seen things differently. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's one thing. And then, and then the other thing is you need to be able to write in a, you need to be able to write well and how you write well, there are different ways to do it. It can be that you write an extremely entertaining and offbeat and, and funny and bracing and, way, or it might be that you write very eloquently, you've, you've reached, you're able to sort of make deeper and more profound points through your writing. But the aspect of writing is is sometimes the overlooked aspect of what makes for a good critic, because it's not just a matter of having that insight, It's you have to be able to communicate it in a way that people find uh, worth reading. Criticism, obviously, it's itself kind of a of a, a, a genre of writing and needs to be written well.
0: So are there any books that you would say for you are or, or just among our examples of the great uh, book criticism? And you can use the term sort of broadly, we can call it literary criticism, I suppose, but you know, what are the, the books, the examples of that that you, you turn to?
1: Well, the ones that, that I think formed me the most, probably the, the, when I first started, when I first discovered that criticism was a genre and it's mm-hmm. something that excited me, um, it was again. It's a little bit the usual suspects, but it was Edmund Wilson and probably his book The *Shores of Light* is is the one I think is is the best. It was Virginia Woolf's *Common Reader* the two volumes. It was Alfred Kazin, uh *American Procession* and, and other books that he that he wrote let's see who were,
0: who were some other, Wait, sorry, which Virginia Wolf book did you say again? I broke the, up there for second.
1: A... Sorry. The common reader. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. She wrote two, two volumes of these sort of, uh, you know, I'm not sure you would call them criticism, but mm-hmm. whatever it is, it's, it's totally, uh, it's totally I mean, it's, it's totally, uh, um, something that can't really be, uh, repeated, can't really be imitated. It's completely brilliant. There are these literary essays in which she just takes a subject. And she also did write book reviews, which are also great. She wrote for the TLS. But these were more sort of literary essays. And they just are very free form. And they're extremely deep and extremely beautiful. And, uh, you know, they're kind of one of a kind. So you can't really, you can't learn, you can only learn from them to a certain degree because she was such a frightening genius, but yeah, uh, but they are just absolute works of art and they are, another, you know, demonstration that that literary writing can be this steep, uh, completely uh, remarkable art form itself. But, so anyway, lots of other sort of classic early 20th century writers. Frank Kermode is probably one of my favorites. Um, that's mm-hmm. a little a little bit more recent. Um, mm-hmm. But he wrote. He did also write just literary journalism reviews for the London Review of Books and places like that. But then he also wrote these longer sort of short book length uh, studies of things. And he's I I find him great because he's able to integrate, you know, he'll have he'll he'll explore a theme and he'll be able to bring in St. Augustine Shakespeare and then Gertrude Stein and then Dr. Lillo into the same piece and it all makes sense and it's all and it's all it's all investigating the same thing and building on the same idea
0: do you think that that's can you be a can you write a really good piece of criticism if it if, it, if you aren't capable of or if the piece doesn't have it it's available to it a wide range of I don't want to say influences but uh, subjects?
1: Yeah, I think. Yeah, I
0: think it probably
1: depends on the piece. I think there there are people who have very who who have very niche expertise uh, in 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 a in a region or in a, a part of the literary world who can really shed a little a lot of light. Someone who's a
0: mysteries critic or something like that.
1: Well, definitely that. Oh yeah, for sure that. There are people who are who are experts on 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 different genres or different periods of writing. Or, or or even you know people who know a ton about modernism or whatever okay. yeah who oh yeah yeah they they can shed an enormous amount of, of of light on stuff you know possibly those those writings will have a more niche audience but maybe not i think those can also be written for 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 a general reader if you're just writing if you're just trying to be sort of an all-around reviewer, then you need to be a little bit less uh, focused and more generalized Mm -hmm. because just because you need to be able to write about more stuff.
0: Yeah. When you uh, are writing a piece for the Wall Street Journal, who is your audience? Who are you thinking of? I mean, are you you thinking of the, I mean, you've got people who just get their books from TikTok. You you know, the book talk is so big right now. I mean, so who's the person, like, who do you imagine I know you probably don't imagine a person but like you know the idea that I'm asking about.
1: Yeah, I do. Uh, you know, um I I imagine my editor and a couple other friends who are either previous editors or or fellow reviewers. It's too it would be too overwhelming for me to try to actually imagine the entire readership of the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> okay. I wouldn't be able to do it. I would find it paralyzing. And also yeah. Also, I think you would run into all sorts of you would start to think, oh, if I start making sort of stereotypical generalizations about who I think the readership is, then I'll start to think, oh, I shouldn't do that book because maybe the readership is not going to like it. But then it's a you 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 it's it's a hopeless uh, it would it would it would be pretty harmful to think about things that way. So, yeah, I have I have a few people in mind and and. And the main one is the editor who's going to read the piece and I want to make sure the piece sort of suits what, what he thinks, Yeah, what yeah. he's looking for in a review, which, you know, he's been my editor a long time and it's not like, and, and we're, we're pretty well in sync. So, so yeah. really that's just a matter of standards. I'm really just trying to think, you know, I need, I want to make this as good as I, as I can get it so that he's not disappointed when i file it
0: do you actively think okay i'm not going to review this book because it's going to get reviewed a bunch of other places um
1: maybe i think i think that more if if i don't want to review the book sometimes there'll be a book that i'm just i'm I, i'm tired of the writer or or i'm or there's something there's something I don't, or I tried the book and I wasn't excited about it or something, mm-hmm. but there is so much uh, buzz or so much. I, I used to be much more influenced by, by buzz, yeah. by the sense that something's going to be reviewed everywhere and therefore I, should, I need to get in on the conversation. I need to have my say on this. Mm-hmm. And now it's sort of the opposite. Now it's sort of like, oh, everyone else is going to review it so I can, I can opt out. Yeah, yeah. You can do something else instead. So I sort of have changed my my thinking on that. Yeah, I I used to I I used to put much more stock in wanting to make sure that my voice was 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 one of the voices that was sort of gonna shape the opinion on this or that thing. I'll tell you a thing that has has changed that a little bit. Was that when I first started, the Wall Street Journal didn't really have a paywall or had a, or had a weak one, so it was much. What I wrote was much more um, accessible to non-subscribers, and also just to the internet in general. It could be linked and shared much more. So people, even people who didn't even necessarily know that the Wall Street Journal had a book section, it could be sort of shared. So, so I, so I was much more interested in trying to write a piece that might get shared that would be seen and now it's, it's the journal as it should and and it's been very good to the paper and very good to me and it's really how a newspaper should be run but it has extremely hard paywall and you really it's very difficult to access anything without subscribing which i think has been really liberating in some way so now it, i know that I, I something i write really can't go viral on the internet Hmm. it can be it can be read it can be influential in whatever way it might be influential and it can speak to a lot of people because a lot of people subscribe but the fact that it's not really going to be sort of something that can be sort of shared around um, means that I don't have to I, I don't have to be in that sort of scrum of voices trying to make my own heard anymore it has a readership and i and, and i can and
0: that's fine do you have to think about this is the kind of book the wall street journal wants to review though no I, i'm extremely fortunate
1: in that i don't have to think about that because that that's would nice. be another thing that i think yeah. would make you crazy
0: they all but you'd almost rather them just give you books to review at that point
1: Right, exactly. Yeah. If they if they were going to go down that road, then they could just assign me stuff. But in fact, they don't do that. And in, in the 11 years that I've been reviewing for them, they never have. And they've mm-hmm. never said, don't do this book or please do this book. Yeah, I, I've been, it, everything has been left to my own discretion. And so it's really just about, mm-hmm. am I interested in this? Do I have something of interest to say about this? Um, do I think it's important? Do I think it's you know worthwhile talk to talk about and that's that's it uh i'm otherwise otherwise it's it's really up to me and they don't they don't bother me with you know they don't tell me about metrics or you know clicks or anything like that i think the editors have to have to worry about that but they've been incredible about insulating me from all of those considerations completely that's great
0: yeah. I suppose if they really wanted you to cover something or wanted some coverage or something, they could hire someone to do like, you know, sometimes they'll do like a long review on like the new Amor Tolls book or whatever.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Do. Oh yeah. Certainly the editors will, will often email me and say, were well, you interested in this? Cause if not, we have a, we have someone who, who would like to review it. Yeah. And yeah. almost all cases I say, no, no, please go ahead. There's a yeah. million, there's a million books, you know, yeah. yeah once yeah. in a while I might, really be like oh i wanted i really really want to do this one i'll tell them in advance but for most part there's so many books that you know if they have someone else who's excited to review something you know that's great yeah yeah no they're not it's it's another that's another freeing thing that i've discovered i'm not i think when the book section first started everything was much more sort of catch as catch can and there was a lot more pressure on me to kind of like If you don't review it, then it's not going to get reviewed. That's not the case anymore. So now if the editor really wants something reviewed,
0: they can easily do it. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of people out there who would love a shot. Yes. Well, okay. So before I let you go, I want to talk about some books that came out this year that have been especially interesting to you. Were I coming to the end of summer? And I know everyone likes to do their mid-year lists and things like that. But I'm actually kind of like more in, interested like okay now we're at the end of summer and we're about to hit fall and fall is like almost like a whole new book season as well as a season post yes you know, it is school yeah. beginning and all that you know yeah. um and so up to this point in the year what are what are a few books that maybe um frame the question this way first uh surprised you the most are there any you know novels or collections of stories that, that you're like man i didn't i did not see this coming this really not because you didn't think this writer was good, but you just right. didn't know about it or something, and that you think more people should read. One one book
1: that 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 I turned out to be really really excited about that I think I didn't see coming, and also probably I didn't see coming because I didn't like the beginning, was <laughs> um, a book called Chilean Poet by Alejandro Zambra. Oh,
0: Zambra
1: yeah. it, Zambra's been around a long time. He, he's, he's Chilean, but he's been translated for a pretty long time, and he's more known. For these very, very short um, novellas, uh, very well-crafted, very evocative, um, kind of oblique novellas that are about, they're usually sort of politically inflected and they're about either growing up in Chile during the Pinochet regime or in the aftermath of it. And so there's always, there's usually some sort of mixture of, of the prosaic and the domestic and then kind of an aura of, you know, political violence or other things in the background of it. But this book, uh, and he also wrote short story collections, and there's usually also sort of a meta-textual element to it. This book, though, is much longer than anything he's ever written, and it's also much more straightforward and much more linear, and I suppose you would call it much more conventional in terms of... um, it's narrative and its narrative voice. And it's about a it's about a Chilean poet, but it's also about his relationship with a woman. It's someone he went he was he was sort of high school sweethearts with and then broke up with. And then years later he meets her again and she has a a son, a young son, and she's single again. So they get back together and he becomes the the stepfather of this young son. And meanwhile he's a poet but he's not a successful poet he's also a, a professor a teacher of poetry and it's sort of about those two things one there's sort of on one side of his life there's this artistic bohemian very sort of slovenly and reckless side of his life and then the other side is his family life and being a father to this to this young boy and it goes through the years and then he breaks up with uh, with the woman, with the mother or the son. And then it becomes about what being a stepfather is and what the nature of that mm. relationship is, and which is even more confused when you become a an ex-stepfather or, mm. a divorced stepfather. And what does that mean? Is that a thing? Is that anything? Are there duties and responsibilities that are built into that? All of this is, again, paralleled with the strange life of an aging, not completely successful poet. What is that? What does it mean when you're a poet and then you sort of grow up, you become middle-aged um, and it's very thoughtful and it's very, there's no particular flash to it, but it's very nicely written. And it, it has a, it has a really great cumulative effect. And it has one of the most moving endings of a novel I've read for a long time. It has kind of a reunion scene in the ending Um, And books rarely have good endings. I I find it's very hard to make an ending
0: good. I can think of a couple of fairly big books this year that your major complaint was that it ended or the final sections were not up to par with the rest of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is probably usual. I mean, even, even often in very good books, you just sort of go, well, it's hard to end books. And that was pretty good. But, but this one was genuinely, um, it really feels like an arrival and kind of the book comes into focus in the ending. That's what you're Mm. looking for in a really good ending when, Mm. yeah. When you you didn't quite you didn't entirely grasp all the aspects of the book, and then they resolve themselves, they come into focus, or they deepen in this sort of ending scene. becomes so it's so it's genuinely cumulative, genuinely cathartic, mm-hmm. uh, and this book has that in in a way that really really surprised and moved me. So that, so that's one that I I've Chilean been, poet Chilean poet by Alejandro Zambra. Um, yes, I think it was Grove. Oh it that you know don't don't it's got play. a good cover
0: we've had that on, on, on yeah, the no, no, yeah. So that was one do you have a um a book that you think is maybe maybe it was one of the ones that surprised you but you have a good feeling about that it might show up on your end of the year list even though it came out much earlier
1: um that, that's probably one um yeah i'm not not sure about that that list i mean so you gotta wait till you gotta do that <laughs> i got a ways to go yeah and as you say a lot of things come out in autumn so i'm not i'm not sure about that but one one book that i was probably less surprised by and i was more i where i was i had a good sense about the author because i had liked her previous books um as an irish writer named sarah baum um she'd written a really nice i think debut novel, and the. I think it was called something like, uh, simmer, wither, falter, spill. That's incorrect, but I'm, I'm forget, It's, it's four funny words and it's really about a guy who falls in love with this do- with a dog. And that's kind of all the book is about. This book. And, and it was, it's a wonderful book. One of the best sort of, uh, human love story with pet novels that I had read in a really long time. So I was inclined to like this writer it's very poetic and, um, and she wrote a book that came out this year that she's called Seven Steeples. And sure. it's a very strange book in that it doesn't really have a narrative. All it is, or it doesn't have a plot, rather. All it is is these two, um, this Irish couple, a young, probably 20-something uh, boy and girl, go with their two dogs from Dublin to somewhere in rural Southern Ireland. And they rent a house that's just down a dirt road in the countryside. And really, all it is, is it follows their lives over the course of seven years, I think. And during that time, because they're kind of... uh, they don't necessarily intend to do it, but they become more and more detached and cut off from all of their friends and from their families and also from anyone else who's living around them. There's one farmer who rents their house to them who they occasionally see, uh, and they go into town once a week, but they don't really talk to anyone. And they kind of, through a kind of like a benign neglect, they just they just lose touch with Human civilization without necessarily meaning to. And the narrative just follows that drift into isolation and what it means to to live entirely isolated in nature and what happens is they start to in a very subtle way they start to lose their individual identities and they start to all blend into sort of a single organism not just the couple but also the couple and the two dogs they start to all kind of their rituals their daily rituals are so are so sort of fixed and they they know what they're going to do each day that they do these things just reflexively um and and more than that they start to blend into the natural world that's around them as well in that like their bed is their spider webs over their beds because they don't clean the house anymore and it's filled with junk that the dogs have brought in mm-hmm. And they've got wild things growing all, all over the place and they just make the same sort of stewed vegetables all the time. And more and more, they start, they start to sort of disappear as characters and as individuals. And, and, and it just becomes kind of a single multi-pronged tentacular organism that's, that's existing in this space. And it's, on one hand, it's very beautiful, but it's also a little bit um, becomes sort of unnerving because they start to be subsumed. They start to be sort of consumed by by the world that's around them. They start to vanish in a way that almost starts to resemble disappearance or even death. And it's very ambiguous. And uh, it's it's I think it's very effective in that she doesn't impose any clear sort of, this is a case where there is no particular ending. It just kind of Mm -hmm. fades out. We see the trend that they're on. We see the drift to where they're going, kind of, and they kind of, they kind of start to vanish and we see that they're on that path and you can sort of imagine what that means, sort of, maybe. And it's both, it's both sort of um, tempting in a way and also a little bit dark and a little bit frightening how they just kind of s- start to vanish as people and, and be completely forgotten also. Um, and it's really, it's really nicely done how, how much she lets the reader sort of fill
0: in the spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned that her last book, you thought it might have been her debut. So that, that makes me curious. Do you, have a, do you have a debut book this year that you think is really worth uh, yeah, there is one. Reading. Yeah. There's one I
1: read recently that I, I was really impressed by. Um, it's a book called the rabbit hutch by an American writer named Tess Gunty. G U N T. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and this is a weird book. I like <laughs> it. It's weird. It's set somewhere in Indiana in a fictional kind of. Uh, rust belt town, right? Rust belt town. That's right. A very depressed rust belt town. Um, that used to be, uh, I think, a, an automobile hub, but it isn't anymore. And the and the, the town council is trying to sort of recreate it as a as a as a dot com as a tech hub. But as a result, it's it's very poor and it's got a lot of. Sort of the usual Rust Belt problems, and the main character. So, in one sense, this book is about this main character who is um is a, was was in the foster system, and clear, even though that book doesn't go into it, clearly had a, you know traumatic. Uh, upbringing in the foster system and now is over 18. So she's aged out of the foster system, but she's living in kind of a a subsidized apartment building with three other aged out foster children. And And on one hand, it's just about kind of her coming of age or her attempt to, to deal with her past and to, and to, and one of the main, sort of story plots is when she was in high school she was she had an affair with one of her teachers and then it didn't go well and she's and she's extremely sort of upset and left extremely mentally unstable because of that. So on one hand there's a very sort of almost typical generic coming of age, you know, traumatized background, bad relationship, breakup story. But uh it it uh, expands beyond that because um, the author gives it multiple points of view, so she creates lots of other characters, including the roommates of this main character, but also just other people who live in their in their um, apartment building so there's lots of different points of view, and those different points of view all start to add up to a more composite picture of this town and of, sort of its depressed circumstances, and also of the kind of collective madness that it has uh, created in all the people who have lived in this in this town and who are all sort of interconnected because they live in the same building and they're always crossing paths and they're always having sort of slightly aggressive, potentially violent um Loomingly violent interactions with one another, uh, so it creates this sort of choral novel, but everyone is sort of linked in the sense that they 're all extremely unhappy they 're all very misanthropic they 're all yearning for some sort of some sort of uh, escape or some sort of release or some sort of answer to what 's going on and and that adds up the the collective nature of that. Creates uh, a world that's very unstable, that's very strange, that's very bizarre, and that, and that uh, expands into a kind of um almost an allegorical world where everyone is on this sort of spiritual quest, and everyone is is in this fallen spiritual state and is trying to, is trying to crawl out of it or or climb out of it in some way. So the book, there's a really nice. Um, instability in the book in that on one hand it's just about you know this this young person who's had a bad background and is and and the and the consequences of that on the other hand it's this strange sort of allegorical panorama of all of these people in suffering from spiritual torment who are looking for you know you know quasi mystical quasi religious answers to to to, to, to get out of it. Um, and it's, it's very hard. You never quite know which is, which you're never quite on firm footing. Is this sort of meant to be this religious allegory, or is it meant to be a work of realism about a really depressed and unstable and mentally unwell place? And that, uh, that instability creates a lot of tension and a lot of interest
0: yeah that's i i' started reading it i haven't i haven't gotten more than i'm like a quarter of the way in but um not i haven't fin- i haven't not finished it because i don't enjoy it i just you know there's so many things to read and so much to do do you, do you have a um a book that you like this year that uh has not been able to just for whatever reason weren't able to include it in your reviews it hasn't shown up in the in the pages of the wall street journal
1: uh, let's see <laughs> if i read anything all the way through that i haven't reviewed um
0: not sure that I have to tell the truth. Do you have anything you're excited for this fall? Like you can't either, you can't wait to review or. Well, one thing that's coming up that I
1: am pretty excited about is, uh, is uh, the the latest book or the latest book to be translated by the, the newly minted Nobel laureate Abdul Razak Gurna, um, which mm-hmm. is just coming out at the end of this month, who again, another, another case of a Nobel winner who I had never, not only hadn't read, but hadn't heard of, which which happens quite a lot. Um, so I had no idea what to think and I had no idea what I would encounter. And I was really impressed by the book. It's really, uh, it's something I'm, I'm going to review soon and I will be out in review. Um, but it's a historical novel. It's extremely, um, I, I guess the way I would put it is it's extremely adult. It's, it's very reserved, um, It's very grounded in history, but not not in a dry way. It's also, it also has a strong narrative line. Um, It it integrates big historical currents, World War I and and, uh, colonial wars in in, uh, East Africa. But it is it is very steeped in the day to day life of characters who are just average people, just ordinary characters. Uh, and it manages to stay in their lives, give their give their lives a lot of dramatic meaning, a lot of emotional, a lot of moral weight, while also illuminating these larger trends in history. And it does it without any particular flair or any tricks really um uh and and it it has a kind of an authorial reserve an authorial distance very often in the books we read now the author is very present and often you can't distinguish between the narrator and the author and you're not meant to so that's the most common way to write now and this is this is the opposite of that in which the author is this sort of extremely distant intelligence who who is nevertheless controlling and manipulating everything but in such a way that you you hardly feel it and you do feel that as though this chronicle is just playing out naturally before you and these lives are just unfolding in an extremely real and 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 uh and moving way so so i'm excited to write about that and i i I think if this is the first uh, encounter people have with this with this writer they they, they What should... did
0: you say it's called again?
1: It's called Afterlives. Mm. It's mostly about it the 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 big crisis is World War 1 as it's fought in Africa between colonial powers but of course it's the the Africans themselves who are who are made to do the fighting mm. and it's kind of about people who survive that in different ways and what they did with their lives afterwards and the lives that they, that they sort of put together afterwards. Mm. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really, really nicely done. I, I, I was, I was really happy to have read it and happy to then know, cause he's got a lot of other books, happy to know they're probably, they're probably Pretty dependably good So there's probably a, There's this a huge uh, Horizon of Very good books That are now Out there hmm.
0: Do you uh, How much credit Do you take for The Netanyahu Who's winning the Pulitzer Prize How much credit Do I take for it well, <laughs> I feel like I'm, you were The first person That I saw Really like You know And then you had it On your you had, I think you had it On your top five yes. At the end of last year
1: Yes Well I was one of the jurors I was on the Pulitzer jury so Oh I, so then a lot of credit <laughs> There was five people on the jury, so I was one of the five who twenty percent the jury nominates three books and then among those three the Pulitzer committee choose chooses uh, one the the one that they think should win or if they choose anything or they right. or they or they do nothing but yeah 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 you know, our job was to nominate three books, so that was one i I was certainly a a, a, a booster of it
0: but yeah was there i mean Were the other jurors like as enthusiastic mostly about it as, I mean, I guess there must've been.
1: Yeah. 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 All, all all the books that were nominated were well received by, by pretty much all the jurors.
0: Yeah. That, that book is, uh, that's one of those books. I don't think I would have read. I mean, I don't not, not just because there's only so much time. Right. But you know, your enthusiasm for it, Pushed me to read it, and now I basically try to hand sell it to everybody I can that I think would like it. I love that book. Oh, good. I'm glad it had that. You know, there's this. There's it had one of my favorite scenes. The one of the funniest scenes I thought in any book I read last year. Um, And I, you might know the one. It involves a door.
1: Yes, sure.
0: I don't feel like I can talk about it without. It's like one of the funniest and saddest scenes. That that book is so many different things. Yeah. At one time. So I'm, I love that book. Oh, I'm glad.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, uh, yeah, I'm very glad. I do do think a lot of people are now reading it who would never have, uh, who would never have considered reading it and and are reading, are reading Cohen who, and, you know, he, I think, I think he, he's gone a long time kind of, you know, been considered maybe a writer's writer or just critical darling or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's nice that I think a lot of people are reading it and some, you know, it doesn't work for everyone, but I think, I think yeah. a lot of people are, 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 feel the same way that you do just find it funny and find the writing exciting and find that find it wild and find it the, full of ideas and intellectually yeah. provocative. And so yeah. that's, so that's exciting that, that, uh, that that really has,
0: um, really has reached an audience. One of the things I love about it is that, as you say, it's full of ideas but the ideas aren't detached from the narrative drive or from the characters, you know, it's not just Joshua Cohen, you know, philosophizing. It's part of the, the, the sort of essence of the book. Is there a book that came out this year that is like that in that way that maybe it's one of the ones you've already mentioned, but it's full of ideas. um, But it's not in a way that's detached from, from the narrative and from the characters. Right. Um, Which is, I think it's a tightrope.
1: It's very difficult. I mean the the reason Cohen does it so well is because he presents the ideas as an argument, and the book just argues them, but without yeah, with, yeah. without really con- coming down on the side of one or the other. Um, one book that has has really 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 stayed with me is the other Nobel recent Nobel Prize winner, which is the books of Jacob by Olga Tokarczuk. Oh yeah, and it's a really it's interesting a book. It's huge. It's yeah. like eight hundred pages, and it's actually pretty difficult to read because, uh, the author does this very interesting thing where she doesn't, um, it's a, it's a, it's a book about this, this head of a heretic Jewish sect, uh, who goes through his time period sort of proclaiming himself the Messiah. And, but he also converts to Christianity and also converts to Islam. And he's just trying to pick up followers anywhere you can get them. Um, And and it's kind of a historically it's kind of there's a there's a certain nastiness to it because he was also inciting pogroms against Jewish people who didn't accept him as the Messiah. So it's a very complicated, very uh, uh, slightly vicious, but also a very interesting time period. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot of bloodshed and a lot of war and a lot of a lot of sort of moving around from place to place. And uh, the narrative is presented from the point of view of a woman who's in a in a coma, basically, or she's she's and yet because she has this slightly sort of otherworldly distance from the world. And she's able to see everything and present it all in a completely indifferent, detached and unemotional way, which means that it's this huge narrative with tons going on and tons of conflict and crisis and warfare and betrayal and it's told in this very detached way. So as you're reading it, you sometimes think, "Oh God, you got to pick it up a little. You know, put some muscle into this more because it's just it's I'm I, I'm so distant from all the stuff that's going on, and it's I'm not being sort of engaged from scene to scene as much as I would like to be. So it's so sometimes you really have to read through it. But I have found, so I finished it and I was immensely impressed by it. It it demonstrates just an unbelievable amount of learning and, and historical knowledge and also writerly control. But I sort of thought, but I don't know if I'd love, you know, I'm not totally sure how much I recommend this book unless it's to a very specific reader who's interested in the subject. But the more I have thought, but so I read this in January and I have Mm. thought about it continually since that time, Mm and i realize that it's working on that sort of authorial distance has basically meant that i've it the the story and the scenes in the book have required a huge amount of time to reveal themselves because they don't reveal themselves so much in the moment because there's no real dramatic crisis there's no, no nothing dramatic is happening so um it's notionally dramatic, but latently dramatic, but it's not actually sort of told in a dramatic way. But with distance, you realize that these scenes and these arguments that are being that, you know, these different groups, the the Jewish groups and the and the and the Christian aristocracy and the and the heretics and the Jews who go with the heretics and all the different political factions. They're all sort of arguing to stuff and discussing stuff and having different points of view. And it's not stressed at all, it's not emphasized. And yet all of those conflicts are present and are carrying the story forward in an incredibly subtle way. And I realize that I have been thinking and thinking and thinking about those things basically nonstop since I finished the book Mm -hmm. and realizing that it's one of the rare books that I probably would want to reread because I probably would get tons more out of it. Uh, A lot of it having to do with the, the, the differing philosophies and theologies and political arguments that are being that are being played out and intellectual arguments that are, that are taking place that are so subtly and sort of uh, non-emphatically conveyed that, you know, I just didn't, I just didn't totally grasp them. So this is one of the books that I have loved reading about. I'm so glad whenever there's a long work of criticism about it, because it's one of those books that I need elucidated. I think it's one of those books that, that criticism can really, really help. You would want to read a lot of criticism along with it.
0: Hmm. you just mentioned rereading you've mentioned five new books here um how much uh, are there any well let me put it this way are there any books that you try to read every couple of years or you know that just kind of like are part of yeah. your i mean your job is reading yeah so it yeah. makes it probably a little tough yeah.
1: it virtually rules out that kind of thing i used to do that um well actually I, i'm not even sure i did used to reread so much i used to be so conscious of the scope of the vastness of the canon and of yeah. all the things that i wanted to read that i was i was much more inclined to try to read a new thing or try to be completest about a certain writer than to than to reread so i still don't reread so much yeah um there's a new Vasily grossman book oh yeah it's not new it's a, a book that he wrote in the middle of the war he wrote is it a, coming? Is this an NYRB release? That's right. This is an NYRB. It's it's the same translator, Robert Chandler, who did Life and Fate and Stalingrad and and all his other great books. Um, this is basically he he was a journalist for Red Star, so he was embedded with the with the troops, and he wrote this book. I don't know in like two months or something in a very short time during the war, and it is you know it's it's it was purely sort of. A propaganda book. It was meant to. It was meant to um, valorize the the Soviet soldier, and um, and I had read it before because I, I love I love Grossman, and there had been a very um, a translation again. I think a quickie translation that was published during the war in the U.S. It was called No Beautiful Nights. Uh, it was probably extremely. Uh, edited and condensed and expurgated and boulerized and changed and you know i found some some cheap online copy and read it just because i was interested in in reading all of his stuff and it was you know it was interesting but largely disposable this book um Chandler is good in that he he gets the original text, and so he finds much. The original text was much richer than mm-hmm. than than the thing that had been translated in the U.S. And he finds all the nuances in the writing. So even when Grossman was writing, you know, you know, a book in one month during the nights with the army while he was being shelled, he still he still had all, and it was writing pure propaganda. He still was an artist, and he still yeah had all of these. He was really gifted at, at small little things, at seeing small things about the natural world or small habits that soldiers had or small things that spoke to camaraderie or you know, or small things that indicated the pathos of, of people dying. So that's been retranslated. Um, I think it's called The People Immortal. believe that's what it's called um and that that that's been really interesting to read it's still not like one of his great books but if you're if you're if you're an admirer of this writer it's very much it's very short and it's very much worth reading especially for the context of how it was written
0: well i've kept you for about an hour planned on a little being a little bit less, but um I think we got we got like six pretty interesting titles between yeah. Chilean Poets, Seven Steeples, The Rabbit Hush, After Lives, The Book of Jacob and uh, the Books of Jacob and The People Immortal. That's like a pretty good month or two of reading for people who are listening. Yeah. I think yeah, that can get you started. Exactly. Yeah. I do have one kind of random question. You don't need to get too much into this. A lot of your books, as I as we've talked about, the books that you write about, are not books that necessarily show up on all kinds of other lists like you've got a very specific taste very very interesting that's one of the reasons why i love hearing what, what you're reading do you, what do you what book do you think that you have reviewed this year will end up being the most the best seller the one that gets read by the most people i'm just curious if you've thought about that which book is going to be read by
1: the most people yeah i, th- I think i know it there's a book uh called tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow oh, yeah. Gabrielle Zevin. Yeah, she, she. I can't remember if her previous books were young adult or if they were just kind of on that borderline between young adult and adult. Uh, this book's but, getting uh, talked about on Book Talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She. This is a book that that yeah. goes into the world of TikTok and and BookTube and um, I don't know places I don't know about. Um, I was interested to read it because. Why was I interested to read it? Uh, because of that, because of what we discussed, I wanted to see what what that sort of book would look like. Um, I think also it it uh, we're now reaching the point where there are nostalgic novels about uh, people who grew up in the eighties. Yeah. Uh, in, yeah. In the early 90s, you know, people look back at that as being, you know, whatever the 60s and 70s were to the previous generation. Yeah, so yeah. this was like the early days of video gaming is what it's about. It's about video game design mm-hmm. producers, uh, designers. Um, so I was interested in that because it's my generation. It's interesting to see how now it's being sort of mythologized or demythologized mm-hmm. or how it's being used in fiction. Yeah. Uh, but uh, also I just, uh, you know, it was obvious that this was going to be a, a, a big bestseller, but not, not like a James Patterson,
0: like bestseller, like a different. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Bestseller. Actually a unique voice. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I, 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 I'm glad I read it. I mean, it's not, it's not something that I'll, will be my sort of favorite book, but it, uh, I thought it was well done. It's, it's, a, it's a big, you know, a big chronicle about friendship and 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 friendship based on video games and and how video games are this creative act and how people sublimate their 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 emotional crises and their emotional worries and into into the creation of these games i I thought it was interesting it was another book where it falls apart at the end um but 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 until that i thought as you said that's very uh that's a thing that's very common yeah in this case she's a very kind of a, a, a totally out of nowhere um violent thing takes place and then the book sort of finishes on on the on the consequences of that but it's sort of like the book went a long way and then it was like but where do we how do we what do we do now?
0: And then so sort of hmm. something has to be sort of thrown in. But that was your big uh, criticism of trust, wasn't it? The ending? The trust final had, or the final quarter, maybe. Yeah, trust had a trust
1: had kind of a um a postmodern twist, which I thought didn't make any sense at all and kind of kind of uh, yeah, Undermined, undermined the whole thing. Um but yes. But but
0: yeah. Well, I hate to end there, but but uh, I've kept you long enough. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, as always, we'll be checking out your uh, your column this week with with uh, what you got three two or three books coming up this week. Yes, yeah, another three books. Great. Well, yeah, as always, yeah, um, my son just wondered. As always, we got uh, uh, we use your your advice and your recommendations to curating the shop and uh, building my own reading list. So, thanks so much for what you do. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, that was Sam Sachs. Thanks so much to him for joining me. And thanks to you for checking out our show. Please do be sure to check out Sam's work at Open Letters Review and especially the Wall Street Journal and wherever else you see his name pop up writing a really fascinating book review. This has been Bibliography. I'm David Kern. Post-production is by Logan Green. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you found a book or two to add to your to-be-read list. Until next time, happy reading.